First Peter chapter 5. We're going to be in a lot of different texts today. This is not going to be a normal expository sermon, but First Peter chapter 5 is one of them that we'll be in. Go ahead and turn there. We know that Jesus died and rose about 2,000 years ago. We also know that there have been 2,000 years of believers living in the ups and downs of life in this broken world, believers living the death and resurrection that the Bible calls the last days, between Jesus' ascension and between and, and Jesus' second coming. But have you ever wondered how did those saints persevere? And are there emphases that they had in the past that we have lost in 2024? Are there things that we could learn from our spiritual fathers and mothers that would help us today? As we have this second message in our reset series, following our mission statement, I want us to consider one of those areas that saints of the past esteemed and considered more than we do. Now, in our reset series, we're looking at our mission statement. Risen hope exists to glorify God as we treasure, apply, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, as was stated earlier, we talked about the treasuring of Jesus specifically in our zeal, our zeal, zeal being kindled, stirred, given attention to. This week, we are going to see connections between that zealous treasuring of Christ and how we apply the gospel to all areas of our life. And in the lost word, I want us to consider that many Christians of the past considered in applying the gospel is this word, watchfulness, watchfulness. John Owen, the famous pastor and theologian of the 1600s, was one who hammered this term. Past Puritans thought that it was a worthy term to consider for the believer. So we are going to consider what is watchfulness and then consider the outworkings of watchfulness in our daily lives. Now I'm going to start with a bunch of scriptures to kind of build my case that this is a biblical concept. So one of them will be 1 Peter 5, but we're going to start with a few others first. Matthew chapter 26, 41. You don't have to turn there. We're going to have them on the screen. Matthew 26, 41. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Timothy 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Then Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Take care. That could be translated, be watchful, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." So here's my argument today. Kind of the main point is this. There is a spiritual alertness 
and watchfulness that we must have in order to functionally apply the gospel to our lives. And if you are an English major or a grammar police, uh, functionally apply means the same thing. I said the same thing there. We need to apply it. We need to functionally apply it. Functional means to apply it. We need to think through how the gospel works out in our lives. Point number one, the lost discipline of watchfulness. The lost discipline of watchfulness. We're going to ask our friend from the 1600s, John Owen, to define watchfulness for us, to give us a biblical understanding, and then we're going to unpack that term. You're going to have to, to get on some some heavy lifting here, so slap your face or hope you had your coffee because this is 1600s Puritan speak, okay? We're going to work hard. Watchfulness is a universal carefulness and diligence, exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways, the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and advantages of sin in the world, that we be not Entangled. Now, Brian Hedges, in his book called Watchfulness Recovering the Lost Spiritual Discipline, which is an excellent book, he quotes John Owens. You can keep that definition up, Nick. He quotes John Owens' definition and he says this If you think you got that, you didn't. You need to read that again because you didn't get it. So let's take Hedges' wisdom and let's read that again. Watchfulness is a universal carefulness and diligence exercising itself in and by the ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways and the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and advantages of sin in the world that we be not entangled. Okay, you may have not gotten it yet. That's okay. Relax, relax. We're gonna break it down. Watchfulness, you can head to that next slide, Watchfulness is a universal carefulness and diligence. Many of the passages that we just read spoke of a carefulness, an an alertness that believers must have. Jesus talked to his disciples right after they took the Lord's Supper, right before the cross is coming, and he says, watch and pray. Stay alert, my friends. We saw many times in our Revelation series, Jesus talking to the church and saying, stay alert, stay awake. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells this really good church to spiritually stay awake and stay sober for Jesus will come like a thief in the night. He'll come when they least expect it and they want to be found honoring their king when the king returns. But we must note the opposite of carefulness is carelessness. The opposite of carefulness is carelessness. There's a type of cool carelessness in our culture, and I would just say even in church culture, a type of laissez-faire attitude that loves the ideas of kind of a freedom of responsibility, a freedom from really believing anything with certainty about anything, freedom from truth, which is actually just living out and believing lies. The road to hell is paved with uncertainty because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had a certainty. So if we have kind of a cool, no one can pin us down uncertainty, we're going against Jesus. Brian Hedges says this, 
If you never search your soul, examine your behavior, or take account of your thoughts, words, motives, and actions, then you are not watchful. We're called to a watchfulness that's considering how we are doing, how our life is going in our walk with King Jesus. You see, friends, there's a diligence to the watchfulness. There's a desire for consistency. So the way we talk to our church family is the same way we talk in the home, is the same way we talk at school or in the workplace. There's a consistency, which means there is an integrity to our lives. That's part of the idea of watchfulness. Secondly, Owen's definition, watchfulness is exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God. Watchfulness does not just happen. We don't just kind of like fall into watchfulness. Recently, I was asking someone about their workout routine, and they told me they go to the gym three days a week. And I said, well, yeah, but what's your workout routine? Because I've seen people in the gym just like going to the water cooler, walking around the, you know, machines and then hanging out and leaving. And you're like, did you actually burn any calories? Like we actually have to do things in the gym. We don't just actually go to the gym and that somehow makes us fit. We actually have routines that we have to do. Well, that's kind of what watchfulness speaks of. It's an exercise. It's a faith-filled effort. Is it spirit-empowered? Yes, but it is a faith-filled effort. It is not effortless. Hedges says this. You might think this quote is going too far, but I think it's really good. He says, watchfulness is the spiritual equivalent to mixed martial arts or ultimate fighting. Like, he just, like, ramps this up. Like, you want to talk about people who work out a ton? You want to talk about some hard work? You're getting fists in the face. You keep going. He says, that's what watchfulness is. This is serious stuff. This is not for the faint of heart. It's a holy sweat. It takes exertion. And it's not a spiritual workout to earn favor from God, but it is a spiritual workout from a place of favor in God. It's being skilled with the sword of the Spirit being agile while you're carrying the shield of faith. It's moving quickly with vigor with our gospel shoes. Because let's be honest, it's hard living out what King Jesus commands of us, right? Just, just read through the Sermon on the Mount. Be like, yep, check, got it. No, you don't. It's hard. It's hard to love people that Jesus says for you to love. It's hard to repent of sin when you know you have to ask your kids for forgiveness or ask your spouse for forgiveness or your roommate for forgiveness and not just ask them for forgiveness, but ask them again for that same thing. It's hard to get up early or stay up late to pray. Fasting is uncomfortable. Sharing the gospel is uncomfortable. Picking up your cross daily to follow Jesus is uncomfortable. The heart is willing, but the flesh is weak. But let's think about this. What is the alternative? 
If watchfulness is hard training, it's this spiritual mixed martial arts, what's the alternative? It is a life where we are baited and ensnared by the devil. We are continually shot at by the enemy of our souls with no weapon for the warfare because we haven't picked up or put on any of the armor of God. That's the alternative for us. Next part of the definition, watchfulness looks out for the baits and methods of Satan. Watchfulness looks out for the baits and methods of Satan. Owen says that those baits and methods of Satan are ways that the world seeks to entangle us. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Carrying sin is heavy and hard. It's a burden. We talked about this last week with King David as, you know, he went and took on Goliath at one moment and years later he's, he's dying inside because he's carrying his sin. His life is parched. Sin hurts. Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's in, it entangles. If you ever go like backpacking and you're trying to go through a trail and you, you have like these thorns or briars that you have to go through, it's hard. You're already tired. You're going uphill and it starts grabbing at your pant legs or your shirt and you're like ripped in your arms and you're like, you're like ah, that's hard. And you have to keep going. That's what sin does. It's clinging. It's grabbing for you. And if you don't believe that, let me read this passage. We read it earlier, 1 Peter 5, 8, 9. Be sober-minded, Christian. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, have you ever watched the Discovery Channel or a documentary where lions attack? Who do they get? They get the zebra or the wildebeest or whatever animal that doesn't stay with the herd. They try to separate them from the rest of the pack, the herd. Friends, there is a watchfulness in being in community with other believers, being in the community with other believers in the church helps you to not get picked off by Satan. For the Lone Ranger wildebeest is a dead wildebeest. The Lone Ranger Christian will prove to be a spiritually dead Christian and will prove to be a non-believer after all, oftentimes. God told Cain in Genesis 4 Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. John Owen says that there are baits and methods of Satan. But let me give you some encouragement. These baits and methods of Satan in 2024 are not new. It's the same baits and methods of Satan that he's been throwing at God's people year after year after year after year. So we need to know what those baits and methods are. We talked about these a lot in the book of Revelation as we studied that. Persecution, seduction, 
and deception. Persecution, threats to our lives, our well-being, our loved ones, persecution. Deception, believing lies, exchanging the truth of God for lies. That whole idea of Satan, did, did God really say? Can you really trust God in his word? That's deception. And then seduction, being seduced by worldly thoughts like materialism or sexual immorality or power grabs or control or even perpetual victimhood. Like we can just grab worldly thoughts and own them for ourselves. That's seduction. Persecution, deception, and seduction. Those are the tools, those are the baits and methods of Satan. Friends, we must be watchful for our enemy is watching us. Look, there's a very real enemy of your souls. If you've ever read um, the fictional account of C.S. Lewis, which is he's talking about um, this in the screw tape letters, he's basically saying uh, these demons who are talking to one another. One of the goals in that fictional account is basically to have Christians just not even believe this is true. Like they win if you're just like, eh, and you're sitting here and you're more worried about the person's hair in front of you or what is going to be for lunch later or, you know, and you're just kind of wandering or you're annoyed with somebody in here. Not that anybody would ever do that. But you're like, like he's trying to get you to not care about this. And he will fight your soul to do that. Persecution, seduction, deception. Let me restate something I've said many times over the years of preaching here. I once read the book Heavenly Man by a guy named Brother Yun. Brother Yun was a godly Chinese man who went through much abuse and imprisonment and persecution in his homeland of communist China for his faith in Christ. Years later, he came to the United States and received a very different kind of persecution. He says this. It's a fascinating quote to me. He says, in China, Christians are persecuted with beatings and imprisonment. In the West, Christians are persecuted by the words of other Christians. And as you go in his book, he's kind of like, I actually would rather the persecution in China than having my brothers and sisters stab me in the back or say harsh things about me. One of my greatest concerns for the American church is we're really good at shooting at each other, using the world's tools and baptizing them, like gossip and slander and self-righteous judgment, lobbing grenades. Friends, we must repent of that if and where and when we do that. For James chapter 3, verse 9 says that our tongue, with our tongue, we Bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And who's he talking to? My brothers. Like he's talking to Christians here. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Oh, friends, let there be watchfulness in how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us have watchfulness with our words. Because that might be the very method of the baits and snares of persecution, deception, and seduction that Satan uses. 
Let us be a watchful people, careful and diligent to honor God in all areas of our lives and resist the schemes of the evil one. So defining watchfulness is what we've done so far, but now I want us to talk through how watchfulness, this careful, diligent, alert obedience to Christ and fighting Satan really does function in our lives. Point number two, watchfulness in applying the gospel. Watchfulness in applying the gospel. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ must function in our lives. Now in the next few months, maybe end of February, early March, Many of us will pull out our lawnmower from wherever it is in your garage or shed or wherever you put it. And what's going to happen if you um, have just a pool lawnmower is you're going to do this. And you're just going to keep doing that. And for a while, that mower is going to be mocking you. And nothing is going to happen except. Why? Because it's been sitting there. The gasoline has to get primed in the engine. You have to pull and pull. And then finally, it, it gets going. You're like, yes, until it goes out. But then you do it again, and then it finally gets going. And so you start mowing, and in 20 to 30 minutes into mowing, maybe you're like, oh, I'm really thirsty. So you go in the house, you get a drink, you come back out, and the mower is stopped, right? But this time, you pull the cord, and what happens? It starts right up. Why? Because it's been running. It's warmed up. It has been doing what it has functioned for. Why it was created. That's not unlike our spiritual lives. If we are cold or dry toward the Lord, it's going to take more work. This applying the gospel, this functioning, this watchfulness. But... As you grow in the Lord and you get warmed up to the very thing you were created for, it's going to become easier because you're made for this. Let's talk about four areas where we want to apply the gospel as a Risen Hope Church family. First, applying the gospel with our personal growth. We are called as followers of Christ to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and run the race. We are called to flee sin and grow toward Christ. The, the, the fancy word you can press your friends in the water cooler with is sanctification. That's us getting away from sin and going toward Christ where sin is less entangling and Christ is more appealing. We don't like sin. The pleasures of that are decreasing and the pleasures in Jesus are increasing. Why do we know that that's what we're supposed to do with our life? Why do we know that's the will of God? Because 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says that. For this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. Your growth. If you're just praying like, Lord, what is your will for my life? Boom. He answered your prayer today. It's your sanctification, your growth in holiness, becoming more and more and more like Christ. But let me give you a helpful hint for spiritual growth. Don't try to change all the areas of your life that need to be changed at one time. 
pick one area. Don't try to change everything and have kind of growth roulette in your life where, you know what, this week I'm going to grow in gratefulness and next week in generosity and next week in kindness and the week after that in loving my enemies and then fleeing lust. And every week you just have a new focus of area that you need to grow. Friends, that breeds minimum growth. Instead, and I'm just giving you advice I received from mentors of mine, Gary and Betsy Ricucci, throw the pebble in the pond of your life and let that one pebble in that one area have ripple effects for other areas of your life. Focus on one area, and it will affect other areas, but focus on the one area. Maybe take this entire year to focus on that one area. Several years ago when I received that advice, anger was the area I needed to focus on. I asked my accountability partner, hey, what area should I focus on? Anger. Okay, wow, that didn't take long. I asked my wife, what area? Anger. Okay, wow, I'm going to focus on anger and fleeing anger. I needed to know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 2. Also, James 2, I need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I needed God's word to inform that area of my life. I needed accountability. I needed good books to help me to faithfully plod in that one area for a long time. I needed the encouragement of my spouse and kids in that area. Friends, let me encourage you to pick one area in 2024 to focus on, but do not decide on your own. This isn't just a decision that you want to make on your own. Talk to your spouse or your older kids or your good godly friends or godly roommate. Get their input because let me just tell you, they already know that area and they want to see you grow in that area. So just ask them, say, hey, if I promise to not get mad, (laughs) will you share with me one area that I could focus on to honor God, to grow in my sanctification, to go more toward Christ and away from sin? They will be happy to share with you and to help you. If you aren't sure, uh, like, what are other areas besides, like, anger, let me give you a recommendation. Galatians 5.22 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. These are great areas to focus on. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of those areas would probably be a good area to focus on because, or the opposite of it. So, so instead of love, if you're struggling with hatred, maybe focus there. Joy, the opposite joylessness or peace, you're an anxious person or, or patience, you're really impatient. Like that's a great list to just consider and pray through and talk to someone about. Another way, uh, uh, a list that you could think about is our seven shaping virtues as a church and as our family of churches. They're listed here, humility and joy and gratitude and encouragement and generosity and servanthood and godliness. Maybe there's something, whether it's the fruit of the Spirit or these virtues that you're like, man, I'd really love to grow in that area. A couple months ago, Mark Prater, the Sovereign Grace uh, executive director, was speaking to the pastors, and he said that area of encouragement was the area he felt like we needed to grow in 
a lot. He was just speaking bluntly. He said, how we used to have a culture of encouragement in our family of churches and how we have it now, we've lost something. And I appreciate him just being loving and have God's heart. He wasn't condemning us, but he's like, we need to grow in outdoing one another in honor. We need to have a culture where we point out evidences of God's grace in our lives. Maybe that's not just our family of churches. Maybe that's this church. Maybe it's not just this church. Maybe that's you individually and me individually. I know it's an area I'm trying to grow in. I've told our elders numerous times, I'm not good here. I need to grow. And several of them are good, and I'm learning from them. Next area to apply the gospel, applying the gospel with our resources. If we're going to be watchful people, we must be watchful and think through how we honor God with our time, with our money, and with our possessions. Do we use all that we have as knowing it's King Jesus's anyway? It's at his disposal. Or do we think it's ours? Are we generous, like really joyfully generous? Are we cheerful giver generous, like God's word says in 2 Corinthians 9? Or are we just sowing sparingly? That's what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 9, like just so sparingly, like just enough to kind of get by to check the box or not have my spouse mad at me or, you know, keep whatever people at bay. Like, I'm just going to sow just enough. Are we cheerful in our generosity? We talked a few weeks ago about the generosity of God when we were talking around Christmas and how it's almost a reckless foolishness, it seems at times, how, how God, the God character in, in Jesus's parables is just like overly generous. You just see it over and over. And then to Jesus' miracles, how over generosity seems to exude from Jesus. Like the, the wedding. It's like, why do we need 150 gallons of wine at this wedding? Seems like you kind of did too much there, Jesus, on that miracle. Or why are there 12 baskets full after he feeds thousands of people? Like, why do we have leftovers? You're, you're the miracle worker, can you not count? Was the quote we read from. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to know his heart, his abundant and loving and lavish grace. Because all of it is his. As the psalmist said, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the gold in a thousand vaults. He owns the homes in a thousand gated communities. He owns it all. So we are free to be lavish with our generosity because it's all his anyway. God, where do you want this to go? It is all yours. I want to have your heart. And when you say give, I give. When you say give this time, this resource, this this property, this whatever it is, it is yours, King Jesus. Do what you will. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. We don't want to store up treasure on earth, friends. We want to store up treasure for eternity in heaven. Third area we must be watchful in applying the gospel is applying the gospel in community. Recently, I was talking to a brother in Christ and, and how we apply God's word in our lives. And sometimes even God's word gives us real functional wisdom that we don't even consider or we don't actually know is there. And so we started kind of uh, talking through First Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Paul's speaking to how the Thessalonian church is to love one another. And we all know that, right? The great command, love God and love others. Like no one's surprised, but we're called to love people. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, how Paul applies that is like, it took me off guard when I was studying this. I was like, huh, that's not exactly where I thought Paul would go with this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. It'll be on the screen. Now concerning brotherly love. And that's how Paul addresses things. You see this all in 1 Corinthians. When he wants to address something, he says, now concerning, and he's usually saying something they've asked a question about. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. These guys are really good at loving. They're really good at it. But he says this, Paul exhorts this way, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. How does Paul apply the gospel of love in this passage? How do we love others according to this passage? We aspire to live a quiet life, we mind our own affairs, and we work with our hands. That's not exactly what I always think of when I'm thinking about, okay, how do I love others? Now, how do all three of those tie to loving others. Well, if we love others, if we want to live a quiet life, not seeking undue attention, seeking to serve the Lord in quiet ways and hidden moments, just being faithful. We love others by minding our own affairs. Another way to say that is we love others by minding our own business. We don't get wrapped up in the things we shouldn't get wrapped up in. We aren't gossips or busybodies. Our heart does not rejoice at the latest scandal or juicy news. We love others through being aware that there is so much to work at right here, so much that God is needing to change right here that, that we're not actually as worried about the people out there. We're going to love them and pray for them, but we're going to mind our own affairs. And then we love others by working with our hands. What does that mean? If we are physically able to provide for ourselves, for our families, we provide. We're not consumers, we're producers. Children are takers, right? I mean, my kids don't actually pay any of the food bill or the mortgage or the insurance. Well, I mean, just, we could just keep listing, right? They take. That's a child thing, and that's okay. That's how God's set this up with family. But spiritually, we must be mature. We must not be infants and children where we just take and take and take and take. Spiritual maturity is producing. It's giving to others. It's taking responsibility. That's part of loving others. You see how the connection, we, we live quiet lives. We're not trying to get attention for ourselves. We mind our own affairs. We're not getting in everybody else's business for no reason to not honor God. We, we work hard to provide for ourselves so we're not dependent on others. But then we can also reproduce that so we can help others. We have enough that we can love others who are in need that can't work with their hands, that can't do all the things that maybe we're physically able to do. That's just merely one example. 
that Paul has of how we apply the gospel of love. Another example of applying the gospel within community is the verse we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers. Take care can be, be watchful, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need regular, daily, today, exhortation, care, and accountability. Regular friendships, regular like conversations with our spouse, regular spiritual mentors, so that we can live out what God's called us in this world. Because here's what this text says. We are all capable of growing harder in our heart toward the Lord. We are all capable of grotesque sin, which I often call downstream sin, so that we can repent upstream. If we repent upstream of something that's far smaller, it doesn't get downstream of to the grotesque stuff that we're doing church discipline with. We repent upstream of lust so we don't repent downstream or have to confront downstream adultery. We repent upstream of anger that doesn't lead to downstream hatred and rage and what Jesus says, even murder. We, we repent upstream of gossip so we don't do downstream revenge and destroying relationships. Friends, the verse of Hebrews 3 warns us that we are all capable of small and slow compromise that leads us toward doing things we never thought possible. But what does the author of Hebrews say we should do? What's the cure for that? Have people in your life who exhort you all the time. Like care for you and will speak truth to you and love you and ask hard questions of you. This may be accountability partner. This may be a spouse. This may be your D group folks. This may be a godly roommate. At times, this has been my kids have seen something and humbly brought correction. We want to have a culture of giving and receiving input, not growing hard in our heart, not growing easily offended, but wanting nothing more than to please King Jesus. And if what I need to please King Jesus is your wisdom of saying, hey, I saw the way you talked to Kristen and that seemed really harsh. Can we talk about that? Oh man, I didn't know that. Well, what did I say? Like, we want to have those interactions. We want to have our lives open where we can be honest. Guys, let's not play games. Like, we want to please Jesus. Let's not just be like trying to dodge and weave being confronted by things. Let's apply the gospel in community. I need you and you need me and we need each other. The gifts God's given to one another, the exhortation, the wisdom of one another, that's how we grow. We don't want to get picked off by Satan. Fourth, applying the gospel to your family relationships. Friends, we must joyfully embrace all that God calls our family toward. We must know the idea of family, even if you're single, this still applies, okay? Because the idea of family in our culture of mom and dad and children is under attack. Like 
biblical roles and gender and the marriage relationship is in the crosshairs of satanic attack in our day. And we must not be reluctant to have solid biblical convictions here. We must know what biblical masculinity is, and it must be modeled by the men of this church, single men, husbands, fathers. We must know what biblical femininity is, and and it must be modeled by the women of this church, single ladies, wives, and mothers. Jared Mellinger asked this question. If your son asks you what it means to be a man, or your daughter asks you what it means to be a woman, what will you say? What is masculinity? What is femininity? Parents, those are real questions in our day that we must really answer because the culture's not answering that or it's answering it wrong. The movie's not answering it. The podcast isn't answering it. The book's not answering it. We must answer it. Munger then quotes Mark Dever. He says, the essence of biblical masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving sacrificial leadership in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. And biblical femininity is displayed as a gracious disposition to cultivate life to help others flourish and to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. Friends, do we embrace biblical masculinity and biblical femininity? Do we embrace biblical masculinity of benevolent responsibility, not passivity, not domineering, but tending to God's creation, providing, protecting, expressing love and sacrificial leadership? Do we embrace biblical femininity as a gracious disposition to cultivate life, helping, affirming, receiving, nurturing the leadership around you? Friends, the watchfulness must be here. Very detailed ways in our homes. We must know what a man is. And we must know what a woman is. And even thinking that I'm having to say this, like when I started preaching 20-something years ago, like I never could have thought I need to say what, we need to know what a man is and what a woman is. But that's our day. We must know what a husband is and what a wife is. We must know what a father is and what a mother is. And then we must pass that to the next generation because our world is constantly exchanging the truth of God for lie after lie after lie after lie where there is chaos and confusion. I was talking, I think it was a couple years ago, to Gabriel Pessoa. Gabriel here? I don't see him. Ish. Oh, he's in Hope Kids serving. Of course he is. And he was recounting a conversation with a friend at school. And this friend of his said, hey, do you like living with your, do you like, sorry, do you like your dad's house better or your mom's house better? And Gabriel said, my mom and dad live in the same house. And the boy looked at Gabriel and said, 
I've never heard of that. I've never, never heard of that. Friends, we live in a culture where there are kids who've never heard of a godly, joyful, biblical marriage. How do we display Christ in the church if there's no godly, joyful, biblical marriages around? I've never heard of that. This was in Goose Creek. This was not like some other location. This is like our area. Friends, our application of the gospel is, is often in small, normal relationships in everyday life. Friends, we must not ignore what 2,000 years of church history has taught. Let us be people who embrace watchfulness and let us be people who earnestly desire to apply the gospel to our lives. There is a spiritual alertness and watchfulness that we must have in order to functionally apply the gospel in today, church family, by commending you. Risen Hope, you are a compelling model of this. This is not a word of correction to you. This is a word of commendation of you, of God's work in your life. You love the Lord and you love his word and you honestly want to apply the gospel in all areas of life. So this is a word to remind you all the more as we start this new year, let's keep going. Let's keep going in 2024. Let's lay aside every sin and weight that entangles and let us run after King Jesus in all areas that he wants us to. Let us apply the gospel in all areas that he wants us to. And I'm gonna pray in a moment, but before I pray, I just wanna give you a challenge. I wanna encourage you to consider someone in your community group or in your D group or maybe a ministry you serve in here. Now, I want you to think of one person. You can do that right now. Think of one person from the group that you've seen applying the gospel well. You've learned from, you've seen them do this, and I want to encourage you to commend them. I want to encourage you to use your words to give grace to those who hear, as Ephesians says. Give grace to those who hear by commending them. Point out God's grace in their lives that you've seen. Point out how they have applied the gospel, maybe a specific way that encouraged you. It could be broad and general, but specific is meaningful. And exhort them to keep going. Thank you for that. Keep going. Thank you for that. Keep going. And maybe take time to pray for them. Let me pray for us now. Lord, we Thank you of grace. So we pray for more, Lord. We pray for more this year. We pray that we would be an encouraging people. We pray that we would go further, not for our own fame, not for our glory, but for your glory, Lord. Let us truly apply the gospel in every area of our lives. God, and show us where we're lacking not with condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, but with your joyful, kind, loving, fatherly, tender care.
pointed out, Lord, and let us be so sensitive to your spirit that we just agree, yes, I want to I grow there. Help me, Lord, help me. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for a benediction. We read the First Peter 5 passage. I want to read before and after it as we close. First Peter 5, starting at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Love you, church. I want to ask you as we finish up, if you would be willing to stack chairs, we're going to have the reception for Jan Knipe's funeral in here later today. Stacks of five against the walls would be so helpful. Thank you so much.